Space Policy Show. I'm your host, Jordan Bingham. Space situational awareness helps to protect and promote space sustainability. Sharing trusted SSA data internationally is growing in importance for space safety and military space activities. Today, we hear from Dr. Mick Gleason, Senior Policy Analyst for the Center for Space Policy and Strategy, about his recent paper, No Haven for Misbehaving, a Framework for Verifying Space Norms. What a title. He will also be joined by fellow policy analyst Robin Dickey. Over to you, Robin, to get us started. Thank you, Jordan. I'm so excited to be here having a chat today with my colleague, Mick Gleason. Uh, say hi, Mick. <laughs> hey, Robin, how's it going? It's great to be here. I'm really looking forward to talking about your recently published paper. Um, since it's a pretty special title, why don't you uh, introduce the title of the paper and maybe just the one <laughs> or two sentence intro to what it's about? Well, I just call it No Haven for Misbehaving. And then it's uh, colon, a framework for verifying space norms. I had to look down to make sure I got all those words right. Uh, it's about... Uh, norms that we need to get beyond arguing that we need norms and figure out how to actually develop norms uh, concretely and what are some of the steps that need to be taken in order to develop these space norms. So that's what it's about. Awesome. Well, since norms are the topic of the day, um, why don't you start out by telling us just a little bit about norms? How do you define them? So a norm is a collective expectation of proper behavior of an actor within a, with a given identity. So this paper kind of focuses on the collective expectation. A lot of other uh, literature out there and work and thinking has been done, done on what is the actual norms, what they should be. This paper focuses on how do you develop a collective expectation for whatever that norm happens to be. Uh, so hopefully it's, it's, it's very broad. It should be applicable to any kind of space norm that we may happen to uh, want to uh, emerge and uh, gain acceptance around the world. So what are some of the obstacles when it comes to developing norms? You know, if we're focusing on the how here, what are the, the issues that we might face along the way in answering that question of how? Uh, well, of course, you have to kind of, uh, there, there's a debate, kind of a, a tension on a spectrum between should it be a very specific norm, technical, or should it be more broad and generally speaking? There's uh, trades for each one of those. Like if you want broad, generally general norms, or they're easy to get other countries to agree upon. If you want very technical, detailed, specific norms, then it's harder to get a lot of uh, countries or other actors to agree to them. So that's one example. Uh, another example that this paper focuses on is how do you verify that other, or monitor, um, confirm compliance that people are actually following a norm? Uh, so those are just a couple of quick examples. And one thing that I notice in my research on norms as being particular challenging is that issue of commitment. How do you get all of these different diverse actors to commit to the same idea? Uh, what are some of the trade-offs involved in that commitment to norms? Well, th that's a great question. So if uh, a, a norm... It, it, if you're going to follow a norm, that means you're you are giving up some freedom of action because otherwise, you know, you just do whatever you want. Right. But if you're part of a community, you need to and follow the norms of that community. 
then, then you give up some freedom of action. I mean, this applies every day in, in, in what we do day to day, to day in our normal daily lives, to laws, to international relations, and so forth. So, you know, one of the major trades is giving up freedom of action. And so the, the idea that you're going to give up freedom of action, especially in a very sensitive national security area like space, why would you give up freedom of action if you can't confirm the compliance or verify the compliance of other actors in space? Uh, so that, that's one of the difficult tensions that, are, that is out there. Um, I can go on if you'd like. Well, I, I very much agree with the idea of, you know, why should I constrain myself in some way if I'm not sure that anyone else is going to do the, the same thing? So, I mean, as I know, as I've read your paper, you have a bit of an answer to that question. So how yeah. do you do that for space? Yeah, so to, to get to a, a country or an actor or some entity to commit to a, a norm of behavior, once again, they're gonna wanna be able to confirm that other people have committed to it and be able to have some trusted information on their, uh, the, the, on their other country's behaviors in space, right? Um, and so, once, so to get countries to commit, they have to be able to see the level of commitment of, of other countries. And so that's where I think that uh, in order for norms and from what I've heard from the U.S. government statements and so forth, uh, is that we want global norms of behavior for outer space, not specific norms to certain number of actors or a small group of actors or like-minded nations. I've heard the word global norms of behavior for outer space several times. And so to get global commitment to norms of behavior, you're going to have to have some kind of, uh, for lack of a better word right now, might as well stick with the word global. You need some kind of global mechanism for countries to be able to monitor other countries' behavior in space. Absolutely. So looking at, at that challenge really brings us to the question of space situational awareness or SSA. So how does this you know, specific set of capabilities layer into our policy, our norms challenges that we've been talking about so far? Well, so we, we've heard uh, for several years now, um, 10, 15, 20 years, uh, going back uh, to the dawn of the space age, so to speak, maybe, maybe not quite that long, but for a long period of time, we've been hearing that you need SSA data sharing for space sustainability, for space safety, for security in space. And so SSA data sharing uh, supports all of these different areas very well. But this paper adds to that laundry list of why you need SSA data sharing and adds the idea that in order for norms to, to take hold, your global norms, you're going to need to do SSA data sharing or the space sustainability norms or space safety norms or space security norms won't follow because you need to have that uh, ability, countries need that ability to confirm other countries' compliance. And so uh, that, that leads into the idea of that you need, uh, according to the norms literature, a third of the countries in the world to reach a critical mass of countries that agree with a norm. Um, and so that's once again, getting back to this global mechanism where you need a lot of, uh, a lot more SSA data sharing than possibly we've been planning for. And not just more than what we've been planning for, but more capability and more broad sharing of the capability than there is right now. You know, only a small subset of countries even have the technology to be able to 
get that kind of situational awareness on space. Um, but taking this now from the, the capability question to a, a deep enduring policy question is how do you build trust if you're not the one gathering that information yourself, especially among international actors that aren't you know, necessarily fully regulated or don't always have normal trust between countries? How do you build that? Well, that's a good question. That's always a challenge, right? Is how do you build trust between countries? Um, and so, well, once again, going back to what the norms literature, academic literature that's been out there for 25 years, that's so far stood the test of time. You need a third of the countries in the world to attain critical mass, a third of the countries in the world to accept a norm. And in order to attain critical mass, that other countries will more easily just kind of jump on the bandwagon. And so that that requires uh, the, that they have trusted sources of information to verify other countries' behavior. Right now, the the, the U.S. I think uh, today uh, or uh, recently, I heard that uh, the U.S. and India are um, joining the SSA sharing agreement, which is good. But that still only leaves about the the United States having about thirty SSA sharing agreements with thirty countries. I'm sorry, I misstated that. The United States has about 30 SSA sharing agreements with other countries. Let me put it that way. Um, and so that's not a third of the countries in the world. There's about 190 countries in the world. And so we, we need 30 more countries before we have hope of reaching critical mass for global uh, acceptance of norms of behavior for outer space, a collective expectation of what proper behavior should be. Um, and so... <laughs> That means that a lot of countries have to have a lot of trust in the SSA data that's being shared with them. The United States has done a good job with the 30 countries that it's doing its SSA sharing agreements with. They, there is a, a level uh, that indicates there is a level of trust in what the United States is providing through spacetrack.org and, and uh, other mechanisms. And so that's good. It's, it's a good start, but there needs to be a lot more. And so uh, developing that trust, I think there needs to be some other ways for countries to verify information. And so as I understand it from your paper, you move beyond just looking at the traditional norms literature to also work in some arms control literature in order to try to answer some of these questions. So can you walk us through the framework and the four different options for frameworks that you look at in the arms control literature to really look at how do you get this sharing? How do you build this trust among different actors? Uh, sure. Thank, thanks for the opportunity to, to share, to walk, walk through all these different uh, frameworks. Um, so once again, arms control is an example of uh, countries uh, mutually restraining themselves. And why would you do that if you can't verify the other country is, is, is constraining its behavior, restraining itself in, in some way? Um, and so that's always a, a big issue in, in arms control treaties is verification of compliance. Um, so kind of borrowing from that literature and merging it with some of the norms literature, um, we find that there's... There, that there's four main different types of, of arms control verification regimes. And the, the first one is unilateral verification. The Outer Space Treaty is a good example of a treaty that has unilateral verification. The United States uh, determined that it could see what was going on in space uh, good enough to know if Russia or the Soviet Union at the time 
or other countries were complying with the Outer Space Treaty. And it was left up to every country individually, you know, unilaterally to verify other countries' compliance with it. That's what we have national technical means for and, uh, and, and so forth. Uh, the, the U.S. Space Surveillance Network and so forth is, contributes to, to this unilateral verification uh, capability. The second one is uh, cooperative verification. Cooperative verification is where two countries agree uh, the, to uh, allow on-site inspections and share data with each other, uh, sensitive data. Um, to, and, and so a good example of this is the, the New START Treaty, where the U.S. is allowed to have on-site inspectors in Russia. Russia is allowed to have on-site inspectors in the, in the United States. We uh, agree not to conceal uh, activities in the United States, uh, some, some specific activities. Russia has agreed not to conceal some specific activities. And so there's a, a level of cooperation. That's why it's called cooperative uh, verification, where the countries um, uh, agree with one another to allow uh, very uh, detailed, intrusive inspections. So those are hard, those are hard agreements to get um, uh, politically very difficult, domestic, domestically, politically also. The third type is multilateral verification, and this is when an intergovernmental organization is in charge of verification of some type of arms control treaty. The example would be the uh, International Atomic Energy Agency uh, is in charge of monitoring compliance with the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. So in this case, you have an, an intergovernmental organization making sure that countries are complying with the Non-Proliferation Treaty. They send international inspectors into a country. They make a, a report on if countries are in compliance or violating the treaty. And then it's up to the international community to respond. But they have a lot of credibility because they're not just one country calling out the bad behavior of another country. And then finally, the fourth, if you're still counting, um, is uh, open verification. And this is more uh, kind of more of a modern, well, it actually goes back to the 1970s with the Helsinki Accords, uh, was found very useful, where you have private citizens, civil society monitoring treaty compliance. Um, uh, you can call it societal verification uh, or uh, uh, there's, there's several different names for it. The concept I think you're familiar with, uh, people with an iPhone taking pictures, uploading it to the internet and saying, look, something bad is going on here. Uh, and this country is violating some type of uh, norm of behavior. And so uh, that, that is a kind of pretty unstructured uh, way of verifying treaty compliance, but it, it works. It, ha it has uh, definitely has significance out there. And so I'll, I'll pause there to give you a chance and make sure I didn't miss anything. Well, that was a pretty uh, comprehensive overview of those four different frameworks that could be applied from a treaty arms control perspective. And understandably, no one of those approaches is really perfect when it comes to applying for, you know, voluntary non-binding norms of behavior for space. So uh, could you tell me, um, which I know is in your paper, uh, what you think <laughs> might be the options for cobbling together maybe some, some good nuggets from multiples of these different approaches to make something really useful and applicable for space? Yeah, that, that's a that's a, a great question, Robin. So th thanks for asking that. The uh, uh, once again, you underlining what you said about their voluntary norms of behavior for outer space, voluntary compliance. So none of the four uh, verification types that I just covered really uh, apply very well 
um, to something that's voluntary compliance, right? So this paper uh, argues that there, there's a, there should be a hybrid type of verification mechanism uh, for the world in order to verify compliance with norms and enable those norms to be uh, broadly accepted around the world. Uh, so this, uh, this hybrid verification combines unilateral verification. Of course, the United States wants to have and, and needs to have its own uh, systems and uh, you know, spacetrack.org and SSA data sharing agreements, the space surveillance network uh, and so forth to be able to, for its own security and, and safety and, and uh, for, for its own efforts to maintain sustainability in space. So that's fine. Russia wants to have their stuff, fine, let them have it. China wants to have their stuff to verify what's going on in space, fine. So countries, uh, by the way, the European Union's space uh, SST uh, and STM efforts, they also have unilateral uh, capabilities. So how do you bring those together with uh, multilateral verification, which has uh, a lot of buy-in from other countries? So uh, that's the advantage of multilateral verification is you have buy-in from all the countries that are member organizations and it has a lot of credibility because they're part of the management structure there's a lot of transparency there's trust in the data they have uh, dispute resolution mechanisms they have all these uh they do cost sharing and so if you can somehow combine unilateral verification with multilateral verification oh and then open verification we have a lot of civil society nowadays acad academia ngos um, uh, commercial space, I, I, I'm throwing commercial space into civil society for, for simplicity's sake right now, but they all have various capa good capabilities to keep track of what's going on in space. The one that I found doesn't fit is cooperative verification on-site inspections. It just doesn't seem like that level of transparency is going to be allowed in countries and enough countries to matter uh, to, to, to verify compliance with um, voluntary norms of behavior. But if you can combine unilateral, open, and multilateral verification uh, into a hybrid verification mechanism uh, network, uh, so all the countries in the world have access to some level of trusted SSA data, I think you need to have that to uh, get norms to take root. Wow, that's pretty, pretty exciting stuff. <laughs> And definitely yeah. the point taken on the cooperative verification issue. I mean, it's a little harder to walk someone up to inspect a satellite than it is to walk someone up to a facility on the ground just for, for physics reasons. So um, I can see how the different applications can be different, not only when you're looking at treaties legally binding versus non-binding, but also just looking at things that are happening on Earth versus things that are happening in space might have to take new approaches and, and new frameworks. Um, so yeah, now that we've kind of, oh, go ahead. Oh yeah, I just, uh, you, you reminded me of another point, was that those traditional arms control verification regimes were mainly designed for counting things, count the number of nuclear warheads, count the number of launch systems, uh, keep track of inventories and, and so forth. Uh, whereas norms of behavior for outer space are mainly focused on monitoring behavior in outer space. So that's also a different twist that the, the paper addresses. Sorry to interrupt. No, all good. It's a, it's a very good point. 
that, yeah, counting things and watching behavior, two very different issues. Um, and so one question that I wanted to bring to you kind of to wrap up some of the, the timeliness of this piece really is, is why now with this paper? What, what do you think we are on the cusp of or grappling with in the norms conversation that makes this uh, particular paper relevant and needed at this time? Well, I, what, I, I think we're at the point now where once again, over the last 10 or 15 years, there's been a lot of discussion on why we need norms of behavior for outer space. That, I think that case has been made now. Uh, there's enough literature out there on why we need norms. And there's actually, you know, uh, major efforts going on to figure out what those exact norms should be. Uh, the long-term sustainability guidelines from uh, the United Nations uh, Committee on the Peaceful Uses of Outer Space are an example of these 19 guidelines that are a good start. Uh, you have the five tenets of behavior from uh, the Department of Defense in the United States, uh, five tenets of responsible behavior for outer space. Uh, so they're trying to define what the norms should actually be. And there's some other efforts out there. Uh, we have an open-ended working group, uh, hopefully, uh, will be taking off soon and, and gaining some traction in the coming months. We'll see what happens with the, with the crisis in Ukraine and Russia, if that's a roadblock to further progress in, in the near future. But, you know, keep, fingers crossed that, that we're able to keep uh, making progress on those fronts. And that's all great. All that needs to be going on. So this paper is just trying to raise awareness that there's a, a, a component, a part of the discussion that needs to be raised. And that is how do you how do countries monitor compliance with the norms? Because once again, going circling all the way back to the beginning, why would a country voluntarily commit to um, reducing its freedom of action? when they can't tell if other countries are, are reducing their freedom of action. And so, you know, so, so that's very important. And then just one final point was uh, on all that is, it's not just the countries who have the most satellites in space and their behavior that matters um, in the space norms discussion. Another important piece of the puzzle is the number of countries in the world need to condemn bad behavior and you know, reward or praise irresponsible behavior. Because if people aren't um, condemning bad behavior and enough people or entities or countries are condemning bad behavior, it doesn't create a norm if nobody says anything when there's irresponsible behavior. So you gotta be able to monitor it and then you have to be confident enough in what you're in trusting the data that you're willing to lay it on the line and condemn bad behavior. And um, once again, uh, praise, for lack of a better word right now, uh, uh, responsible behavior. And really with that, that final point, you bring up something that has been raised with me a number of times in my norms discussions. And that's when people ask like, oh, well, what, what about when the norm fails, when someone breaks the norm? And it's important to note that the, the purpose of norms is not necessarily to prevent anyone from doing anything bad ever in space. It's the idea that norms are judged uh, in terms of their strength, not by if someone does the bad behavior, but by how strongly the rest of the actors in the community band together to condemn that bad behavior or praise the good behavior. If someone breaks a norm and everyone piles on and says, this is unacceptable, that's probably a good sign that you've got a norm. 
But if someone, you know, does a behavior and no one really, you know, bats an eyelash at it, that may be a sign that your norm is either not there yet or it's deteriorating. And so do you have any kind of final comments on that, that question of what, it, what is the purpose of norms and what is the two, true test of whether a norm exists or not in light of your paper? Well, you've said it all so well, Robin. I, I, I don't have uh, much I can add to what you just said because I think everything you said is, is right, on, right on the money. I would just, one thing to add though, is just the, with the condemnation, right? Uh, and uh, piling on, of uh, other observers and actors when uh, irresponsible behavior is seen, it's the consequences that follow from that. So maybe there's bad behavior, but it's the consequences that, that can come from it. Is it some economic sanctions? Is there some uh, trade rift? Is there uh, you know military uh, rise in tensions? Uh, there, there's all sorts, you know, are diplomats expelled from embassies? Our uh, relationships broken off or cooperative space relationships bro broke off in the scientific area or whatnot. The, to, to, have, to, to, to have consequences for someone violating the norm, you have to have that collective expectation. And that, that means when it's violated, there has to be that collective condemnation. And so that means you need a lot more countries than just the United States and like-minded nations to understand these norms, agree to them, and uh, have access to trusted SSA data. All right. Well, on that note, I think we've covered quite a range of topics today, all of which addressed in your paper. So that's a pretty impressive accomplishment, in my opinion. Um, really enjoyed reading and helping uh, work on the paper. And uh, for those of you who are interested in reading it, it is on the CSBS Aerospace website. So please do give it a look. Um, and with that, uh, thank you so much, Mick, for talking with me today. And I'll hand it back to you, Jordan. Thank you to Robin and Mick for joining us today and sharing this SSA framework with our listeners. Our executive producers, Colleen Stover, and our technical directors, James Liggins. You can browse other episodes at csps.aerospace.org or check us out on Twitter using hashtag the Space Policy Show. We look forward to having you tune into our next episode.